It's all yours. Salvation according to your promise, then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law, forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, I have, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak to your statutes before kings, and will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands, because I love them. I lift up my hands to you, your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Okay. Notice the first verse says, your salvation. Your salvation? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good stuff. Okay, we got, uh, we might as well read this day in Christian history really quickly. Six. Is that, yes. Six. Okay, six August. Some call it America's Pentecost. The state of the American frontier in the late 1700s was one of growing religious indifference. Christianity was on the decline as settlers began to experience economic success. Settlers went to the frontier to get land, not religion. Referring to Lexington, Kentucky in 1795, Methodist James Smith feared that the Universalists, joining with the Deists, had given Christianity a deadly stab hereabouts. James McGready arrived in Kentucky in 1798 to pastor three small frontier Presbyterian churches. His fiery preaching, with its vivid descriptions of heaven and hell, shook the apathy from his congregation. When the Red River Church started to plan its annual communion service in 1800, it decided to invite other local Presbyterian and Methodist churches to participate. The typically reverent, quiet communion service of Presbyterianism turned surprisingly emotional and ecstatic. The ministers and parishioners alike were amazed at how God worked in their midst. Although somewhat wary of emotionalism, the Presbyterian and Methodist ministers began to play a larger communion service weekend for the following summer at Cane Ridge. Word of the upcoming camp meeting spread throughout the frontier, and on August 6, 1801, the Cane Ridge Revival began. For seven days, thousands of people descended on the Cane Ridge Meeting House in Bourbon County, Kentucky, about 20 miles west of Lexington. They gathered together to worship, fellowship, and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Friday and Saturday were solemnly observed, devoted to fasting and praying in preparation for Sunday's communion. But as thousands more than expected arrived, the crowds grew restless and sabotaged the traditional Presbyterian routine. Preachers began to take the stage one after the other, with the large crowd growing in a frenzy on occasion. Some ministers were encouraging ecstasy and emotionalism, while others were fighting to maintain control of their audience and to return the focus to the solemnity of the Lord's Supper. The excitement of the crowd won out. Large numbers of people were crying, shrieking, fainting, and convulsing in religious ecstasy. They, this went on for days. Although all of the ministers were pleased that so many had turned out and the apathy wasn't an issue, <laughs> there were heated disagreements over whether the preacher should be trying to stir up emotionalism with their preaching. 
The Cambridge meeting was both a beginning and an end. It was the end of the long-preserved Scottish-Irish Presbyterian tradition of lengthy, highly ritualized, large group communion services. This was the first of such services in the New World, and the emotional events of Cambridge served to force the end of that tradition. The Cambridge meeting was also the beginning of a new institution, organized camp meetings and revivals that turned the American frontier from apathy back to Christianity. Estimates of attendance at Cane Ridge vary widely from 10,000 to 25,000 with from 1,000 to 3,000 reported conversions. The banner year for camp meetings was 1811 when as many as one-third of all Americans attended at least one such meeting. Now, how do you think you would have reacted to the Cane Ridge revival if you had been there? Does the outward display of emotions in worship services make you feel ill at ease? Or does it enhance your worship experience? And they cite Psalm 100, Shout with joy to the Lord, O earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. Good stuff there. All right, we got a couple of prayer requests. Let me put that down here. I need this. We'll put this here and fold that up. Hang on. Sorry about that little delay. Okay, let's see. We got uh, some prayer requests here. Uh, let's see here. I've been saying Siri. His name is spelled C-E-R-Y. It's actually Kerry. It's He's in England, and I didn't know that they pronounced C-E with as a cup. Yeah, yeah, I had never seen that before because we think of Celeste and, uh, uh, you know, ce celebration and celery and anything C-E is. Anyway, his name is Siri. Okay, he's going to rehab Kerry. hospital. What? I, I'm sorry, Kerry, yes. Thank you. Um, we're going. He's going to rehab hospital where antibiotic infusion will continue for his blood infection. That will be tomorrow. <clears throat> so we want to keep him in prayer. Ricky Graham emailed me just a couple hours ago, and he said that his brother Tom, his veins in his legs have been exploding, and they're so bad now that he has to go through amputation. So we want to keep him in prayer. And Catherine is doing better from her fall here a week and a half ago, a little more than that. And uh, but she's still in pain. She's still got, you know, her head is uh, swollen, etc. So we got to continue to pray for her. Uh, Lisa in Australia, I hadn't heard anything from her. And so I assumed that she was a okay. And then she emailed me yesterday and told me that, you know, she's got all kinds of problems continued after her surgery. And so we want to continue to pray for Lisa. And then uh, Becky in Colorado said her husband is getting better. And uh, part of their problem that's been going on and on and on seems to be allergies which is something that, you know, you don't realize because allergies manifest themselves in different ways. And, but she still has a couple other issues, so we'll keep her in prayer. And then um, Melissa, I brought her up a week or so ago. Uh, her house had burnt down a while back, and she said the adjuster just came to evaluate the house, and he said he couldn't believe it. There's absolutely nothing left. So he's being accommodating to them, and she's just asking for continued prayer so they can get their life back in order. And then Ray Martinez, who we prayed for last week, passed, I think it was today, I, I got the email today, so uh, he's off with the Lord, which is, you know, for him, how much better, but for those who are left behind, he will be missed. And so we got that, and we'll keep them in prayer. And then just one announcement, today is the 
what what day is it today? The sixth. So in uh, uh, four more days, we're going to be starting the book of Revelation. I said that during the Prophecy Update, and I did it almost not wanting to do it because Prophecy Update people that only watch Prophecy Updates really, I hate to say this, but they just don't really care about the Bible, many of them. They want sensationalism, and then they watch another 10 Prophecy Updates during the week. Uh, the people that uh, attend the uh, Superior Word you know, for their church or for the Bible study want to know the Bible. And uh, I thought, you know, maybe somebody doesn't know this that uh, I should report it to. And so I said it during the Prophecy Update, and I'm saying it again now that we will start the book of Revelation after the book of Jude. We got four more verses to do, and then we'll get into that. And uh, I think it'll be a, a fun, it, my commentary will probably not be as sensational as many people's will be. You know, a lot of people want to just uh, speculate about future events and this and that. And I, I'm not into that. I'm going to evaluate the verse based on what the verse says. And uh, so uh, anyway, we'll hope that it's something that will bless people. And uh, so far I've gotten, I think, four verses. Yeah, I did verse five today, but the, uh, the uh, introduction alone was seven pages long. And that's because I really had to cut it short. I could have made it 20 pages long and not stopped. It is, it, the introduction alone is just trying to explain what's going on and the different views. <laughs> you know, you got praetorism, you got dispensationalism, you got amillennialism, you got all these different views of, of the book of Revelation. And, you know, each one is going to, and most people, when they start a commentary, will say, <clears throat> we uh, uh, are going to take this in context line by line without any presuppositions. And then the first thing they do is give you a presupposition. They'll say something like, well, this is future events, okay? That's presupposition. As soon as you say, well, this is fulfilled already, or, a, you know, a praetorist, that's presupposition. So they're not taking it, and so I just skipped that, and I said, this is being done from a dispensationalist viewpoint. Here are the wrong viewpoints, and here's why. So I may not have even said, here's why. I think I said that we'll talk about those during the book or something, but Anyway, I'm not going to hide the fact that I'm a dispensationalist, that it is geared to the church age in chapters 1 through 3, and then after that it goes into Israel. And that is describing what's going on with Israel, with obviously some uh, back and forth uh, events that are uh, portrayed within that uh, section from 4.2 until 19.10, but the most of it is dealing with Israel during the tribulation period. Okay, the world at large, but Israel is the focus. And then after that, in 1911, we come back with Christ. Okay, and then we go off, you know, into what's going on in the millennium. Very short section. I mean, it says a thousand year reign of Christ. How many times? Anybody know? I'll give you a shirt if you can tell me. Got a shirt here. How, twice, he says. How many times? Anybody else? Okay, no shirt for you guys. Um, I've got a Charlie Missy uh, Eternal Life Matters shirt, so I, I may give you another trick question today. I may not. Maybe it'll be over the weekend, but uh, it's six times in, I think, two chapter or two paragraphs. It says a thousand years, a thousand years, and people want to spiritualize that. Well, I could see if you're going to say something one time, you might be able to spiritualize it, but no, six times. Okay. Anyway, we're going to open in prayer. Yes. Amanda's granddad. Amanda's granddaddy. She wanted prayer. Do not get that. Oh, yeah, but I did she say to mention it here? No. Okay, because I unless somebody says please bring it up during a uh, uh, oh, okay. a, a study or yeah, it, it, usually when people say would you pray, I say I will and I do. Okay. But unless they say you know bring this to the church, okay. I don't you know I, that's why I didn't write that down because okay. she didn't specifically say that. So uh, anyway, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to uh, pray 
for the people we mentioned and for uh, the issues that have arisen and for uh, comfort for the people that lost their beloved Ray. And uh, we certainly uh, would hope that you would reveal yourself to anybody in that family that has not called on Jesus. And uh, they might know that uh, uh, there is hope that is found in Christ and that he had that hope and uh, they can know that as well. And Lord, we certainly also add in the people that uh, we have in our list of people that do not know Jesus, that uh, uh, family members and friends that uh, we've written down and, and have in this uh, prayer book right here. We would lift each one of them up individually and uh, to you. And we would just ask that you would be attentive to that in your own way and according to your wisdom. But we certainly have these people on our hearts and uh, uh, they're a burden in our lives knowing that they don't know Jesus. So we do lift them up. And Lord, we just ask that you bless this time of study here. And we uh, just uh, thank you for it. We thank you for the chance to get into your word and we pray that it would be handled properly. But if something is not said properly, that you would be, uh, uh, that you would override it in the minds of the people, send them to a right commentary or a right analysis so that nothing is incorrect in their theology based on my failing. We would pray this, that uh, they would be built up and that you would be glorified. We certainly pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's see here. We have uh, uh, 2.13. Galatians 2, verse 13. Go back if you need to. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the top of the paragraph, which is, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came to James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because... He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 13. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, they even Barnabas was led astray. Okay, Barnabas. Uh, I, I know Burke knows this. Does anybody else know what Barnabas means, the name Barnabas? Uh, Bar means son. Of, yeah. Uh, Bar is the Aramaic term. In Hebrew, it's ben. Okay. Bar no, Thomas. Barnabas means Thomas. son of encouragement. I wasn't going to give a short away from that because I figure it's pretty common knowledge, but um, you did know that, didn't you, Burke? Encouragement. Yeah, okay, yeah, son of encouragement. So you see Ben, uh, uh, whatever, then you know that that's son, and they're using the Hebrew. If you see Bar, like Bartimaeus, right? Well, that means son of Timaeus, okay? That's not his name, Bartimaeus. It's Bar Timaeus, son of Timaeus, Okay. And he would be called that, and it may actually be his name. Like we've got um, uh, in the Old Testament, what's the guy's name? Uh, 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 Saul's second in command, Abner, right? Of Ner, of his father. Ner means lamp. So it would be, but his father's name is Ner. So Abner, his father's name is Ner, father of light. So they've named it based on his father's name. There you go. It's just, that's how these things work. So if you break down the names in the Bible, to their basic elements, you'll be able to quite often discern what the name means, even without knowing what the word means. I mean, you can just kind of put it together. And um, can we help you, ma'am? Oh, my wife is here. Listen, uh, how many are in there? Okay, we got three coconuts. I shucked a whole bunch of them today. They were really heavy. So she brought three and I figured there wouldn't be a lot of people here. But if you want a coconut, please take it home. Uh, bring me one up here. Would you do that? Because I want. we're going to stop before we get into the Bible. And I'm, I know people online might not want to see this, but people online might need to know this. And so um, bring me one very quickly. And uh, the reason why I'm going to do this is because I don't want somebody to get hurt, whether they're online or whether they're here in the church with a coconut. And I, so... 
bring that up here. And uh, let's see here. Oh, it must have fallen out. We only have two, but if you want a coconut. Okay, really quickly, just so if you are shopping, and this is really important to know. This isn't me just goofing around. Um, this is a coconut that you would buy at the store. If you're up north, you're not going to get the whole coconut. They're going to take off the outside. But if you want a fresh coconut, it's going to look like this. It's hard, okay? And the way that you open a coconut is it's got three dots on the top. One of them's soft, one of them's kind of medium hard, and one of them's hard. All you need to open a coconut is a hammer and a screwdriver, okay? And I say a screwdriver, you do not want to use a knife, and I'll tell you why in a second. But you take your screwdriver, a flat-headed screwdriver is better, and you go through, just find the soft one, go through it with the hammer, kind of tap it through, and then make a second hole through the one that's not so hard. And that way you can pour out the water that's inside, and you drink that. You don't throw that away. It's really good. It's usually pretty sweet. But you uh, pour that out, and um, you need two holes, because if not, you'll be there all day shaking out one drop at a time. You've got to have an air hole. Okay, after that, what I want you to do is you take your hammer, all the water is out of there, and you hit it nice and hard, but not real hard. Just keep turning it and hitting it, and eventually you hear it go crack, and it'll just split right in two, as if you had taken a saw and cut it. It'll right in two. And this is the important part about a coconut. If you, you have meat inside... And if you use a knife and the knife breaks, this is round. You're trying to dig it out. That knife is going to go right into your hand. And it's going to, you don't use any knife. You got to have hardened steel. And that's why you want to use a flat headed screwdriver. And you want to get in between the meat and the, the shell and just put it in there and just pry it and pry it. Don't, don't go, you know, just try to get big pieces. And the bigger the piece you get, the, the less work you're going to have to do. And then you can cut it up later. But even with a screwdriver, you are prying into something that's round and you've got your hand on this side holding it. Well, what's going to happen is while you're prying it, if you're not careful, it'll slip around and it'll go right up through your hand. So you be careful. And that's, this is a public service announcement for people that watch this Bible study. If you open a coconut, never use a thin knife. Don't cut it inside. That's not going to get you want to get all the meat out and the, the part that's on the nut, okay, on the meat that's facing the nut is hard. It's brown, but you eat that, and it's tasty. It's almost like eating something kind of bitter, but it's very tasty. So you want to eat that as well. Don't try to cut off the white part from the uh, brown part because it's edible and it's good, okay? But there's your public service announcement, and I did that because I don't want people to get hurt, but coconuts are really, really good. So I apologize for that. We're in the Bible, and we're in uh, 2.13. Here we go, Galatians 2.13. Be careful with your coconuts. Oh, one more thing about this. If you want... After you've hit it in half, I mean, this thing is perfectly in half. You take this side that's got the two holes in it, and if you drill a hole here, here, and here, and put a string on there, you've got a bird feeder. And just put bird seed. We used to do that when I was young. We'd make bird feeders, and so you put your bird seed in, and the holes allow the water that when it rains to drain out. So you've got a little natural bird feeder, okay? And the other half, this half, you put on your head, and you can wear it as a kippo when you go to the Western Wall, okay? So there you go. All right. Um... Okay, sorry about that. I just, I, I, I feel it important for me to say that because you can really get hurt with a coconut if you're not careful. But if you like fresh coconut, it's, the, it's so much better than what you buy in a store. Okay, 2.13. Um, I'm going to read it again. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, meaning Peter, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. All right, Barnabas, son of encouragement, was the one that was with Paul. He's the guy right at the beginning. Remember, he is right at the beginning, and he came to the apostles, and he laid the money at the apostles' feet from a piece of land that he had sold. This guy was there from the beginning. He was grounded in the faith, 
and yet he was led astray. He had been with Paul, you know, out on missionary journeys. They'd been traveling and telling people about the grace of Christ, and he was led astray along with Peter. So this is an infection that you really have to be careful of. You need to, I don't care who you are and how grounded you are in Christ, obviously, if you're dealing with Peter, one of the apostles, you can be led astray. Doctrine goes on for the rest of our lives. Nobody has everything known in the Bible, and there are always going to be new points of theology that will come to you as you're studying the Old Testament or as you're studying, you know, the prophets or something. And you can just get a little off, and the next thing you know, the whole thing starts to unravel. And as Paul says, a little yeast leavens the whole lump. And so you bring that into church, and pretty soon you've got a church that was grounded in something, and they get off on these crazy tangents. And they actually rewrite their doctrinal statements and the church is lost. And that is not something that is made up by Charlie Garrett. This is something we've seen, you know, somebody at a church that did that. They actually came out, then they had two different doctrine statements. In the, It's still here, still here in Sarasota. They have two different doctrine statements. One for their people in the uh, the, the management, the, uh, you know, the upper elders and the deacons and all that. And they have another one that they present to the church because what the People, the elders and the deacons proclaim in that church among themselves is completely heretical. You know who we're talking about, I think. Yeah. Okay, so, and they're, they're a big church. They're not a small church here in Sarasota. This is a big church that is affecting thousands of people. And their doctor, yeah, isn't it that? It, oh, it's empty now. Good. Okay, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. So, anyway, it was a very big church, and I went in there only one time. Somebody invited me to a concert that was there, and it was, it was full. I'm literally filled with people, so I'm glad to hear they're not doing well. Um, okay, 2.13. Well, I mean, if you're going to be doing that kind of stuff, then um, uh, here we go. Uh, the comments on 2.13. In the previous verse, it was seen that Peter began to withdraw from fellowship with the Gentiles. These Judaizers had come in. Peter starts getting scared. Oh, they're going to take a bad report of me back to the, uh, you know, the people up in the uh, Jerusalem. And so he started to withdraw and because of the presence of some Jews who came from James. As Peter withdrew, it says the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. All right, Peter was considered a pillar in the church. In his move to apostasy, the other Jews followed ranks as well. Okay, they feared that they would lose the approval of other Jews, caring more about what man thought than what Christ offered to them. This is exactly what we see in churches all over the world. Introduce a little bit of Hebrew roots movement into a church, sound church, and all of a sudden people say, well, I'm more holy than you because I'm observing the Feast of Tabernacles and I'm doing what the Bible says to do. And even pastors that don't read their Bible, that are not grounded in theology, will start to get led astray. Oh, well, you know, I got these people and I really don't know my theology and maybe they're right. And they start introducing the feast of the Lord again. We had somebody, once again, I, I hate to bring this up. I'm not trying to speak badly of people, but once again, somebody sent me a video of a very famous Jewish person who's in Christian circles just this weekend, I think, or it might've been last week. It was a video that I saw just yesterday. And people send me videos. If you send me a video and you want me to watch a part of it, here, I want you to watch uh, what he has to say about this. And it's an hour long. I don't know what you're thinking, so please send me the timestamp, and I'm not going to watch more than five minutes of any video ever. I don't have time, but if you say, well, please watch from minute 40 to minute 45, I will do that for you if it's something important, but this person is very good about doing this with me. I want you to watch from four, uh, 28 minutes and 40 seconds to 29 minutes and 35 seconds, so it's two minutes long or something. 
And that's a big help to me. But just within the past week or so, this person said that Christ fulfilled the first three feasts of the first four feasts of the Lord, and when he returns, he's going to fulfill the the rapture is going to happen at the Feast of Trumpets, and then you're going to have the Day of Atonement is going to be fulfilled in the second coming, and the Feast of Tabernacles will be fulfilled in the second coming. I said this, and I'll say it again. I'm not going to say the guy's name. He's real popular, and you are getting the proper doctrine, and you can tell people that he is wrong. That is not bad doctrine. That is heresy. And there's a difference between bad doctrine and heresy. Bad doctrine will not keep somebody from being saved, but heresy will. In saying that Christ has not fulfilled the final three feasts of the law, it is saying that Christ has not fulfilled the law. Okay, if he has not fulfilled the law, we are following the wrong person. He is not the Messiah, and we are in our sins still. Okay, it's that serious. It is that serious to say that we are waiting for the final three feasts of the Lord to be fulfilled. That is incorrect. If you want to know the correct doctrine on that, just go watch the Feasts of the Lord sermons from the Superior Word. You'll find out that they're all fulfilled, and you'll see their fulfillment application. And you'll say when you're done, oh, I guess they're fulfilled, because here it is. So please, just because somebody is Jewish, don't listen to them. I've had people send a couple things to me over the past two weeks about Jewish people in Israel that are proclaiming things about the book of Revelation and etc. And I've said, that's incorrect. It is not correct, and I stand on this doctrine. Here is why, and everything else, I'm not going to listen to. I'm not going to participate with it because I don't want that kind of stuff in my mind. But um, when somebody sends me something like that, and they say, you know, please check this out, I will. Be careful who you listen to, and it's not because they're bad people. It's because they are not trained in theology. They are improperly trained, or they're running ahead with something that they heard and never went and checked. And I will be the first person to say that I used to believe that the final three feasts of the Lord were yet to be fulfilled. That's what Zola Levitt used to tell us. Remember that? Okay, I used to believe that. And then I thought it through. I just sat down and thought it through. If he hasn't fulfilled it, we're waiting for it to be fulfilled, then obviously he didn't fulfill the law. And that is wrong. Okay, so please be careful with these type of things. Um, Peter is, uh, was considered a pillar and a leader. In his move to apostasy, which this is, this is apostasy, it's falling away from the faith, the other Jews followed ranks as well. They feared that they would lose, lose the approval of other Jews, caring more about what man thought than what Christ offered to them. This became such a strong movement among the Jews that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was carried away with their hypocrisy. Barnabas had traveled with Paul on a missionary journey, evangelizing Jew and Gentile. He had received the commission for this while at Jerusalem. No. Antioch. Paul and uh set aside Paul and Barnabas. It was what's that? Well, I don't know. Let's check it out really quick. He wants to know where so that we can uh we want to probably said no no it would be after Paul he went with Paul so it has to be a uh, chapter uh 10 or somewhere around there set these apart and uh um I don't know 10 11 somewhere around there we'll find it very quickly might even be later because um uh it's got to be because Paul is really introduced in the narrative in 13 so we're going to find this really quickly it says it's at Antioch and um uh, probably 13, then having fast. Yeah, there it is, chapter 13. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there yeah. were certain prophets and first, teachers. First. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. First, first. <laughs> yeah, who were called uh, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me 
Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Okay, so there you go. Um, the uh, uh, It was 13, it has to be, because that's really when Paul, yeah. his ministry began, is in 13. I mean, there's other things that are going on, chapter 9 especially, but this is where they were commissioned and sent out. So he's commissioned in uh, uh, Barnabas, had traveled with Paul, here I've got it written down right here, on missionary journey evangelizing Jew and Gentile. He had received the commission for this while at Antioch. The commission and the missionary journey fill all of Acts 13 and 14. And their work comprised countless miles and encompassed a host of areas. Both Jew and Gentile were preached to, and there was intimate fellowship with all who received the gospel. It's such a, Acts is such an encouraging book. It's such a beautiful book. Through all of this, Barnabas had seen the power of the Holy Spirit and had been a close participant in all that occurred, all of it. In verse 2, 5, Paul noted that Barnabas had held fast through previous challenges by the false apostles. Okay, we'll go back there and read that again, just so you can see it. 2.5, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So they held fast, and then all of a sudden Peter starts to waffle. What happens when you have one waffle, another one joins in on the skillet, and now you've got two waffles, and pretty soon the whole skillet is full of waffles. No waffling, we don't want that. And... Um, Let's see here. Challenges by the false apostles. He stood strong and defended the gospel of Christ. If anyone should have had the conviction to stand against Peter's hypocrisy, one would think it would be him. But such was not the case. He weakened in his devotion to the truth of the gospel and fell back on the law. Okay? And you you got to figure that now. If And obviously the Lord knew that this was going to happen, but what would have happened if Paul wasn't there? Everybody would have just departed. Paul would be standing there all alone saying, we've already resolved this, and we're going back to this again, right? Christ took care of this at the cross, and he's standing out there, a lone voice calling out, but it didn't happen. Paul at least was there, and he was able to turn them back. Life application. No person is above waffling on his convictions. We may think that we are an unyielding iron wall, but the Bible bears out that even the hardiest soul can falter. Paul's words of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 should be heeded by all. Here's what it says there. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That means that Peter and Barnabas were able. They just failed. Okay. But with the temptation will also be made the way of escape. Paul was there to help them, and they did escape, that you may be able to bear it. Now, that's obviously a spiritual application, and Paul may have been more thinking of, uh, you know, physical things, like being tempted by the neighbor's wife or being tempted by, you know, money or bribes or something like that, whatever. But it doesn't matter. Temptation is temptation, and I would say that it's a lot more serious that a person is tempted away from sound doctrine than anything else. Anything else. Sound doctrine is where we need to stand at all times. Okay, um, 214, please. Quick question. Yes. Um, I, I'm wondering if we covered this last week, but these people came from James. Yes. Is that like like putting fault on James that these people... No, uh, it, they were there, and he's already called them false teachers, and so James may have just said, you know, they're in the congregation, we need some people to go up and carry a message. 
And so, you know, it's like here, we've got this small church, but suppose that we were filled with people and we wanted to send somebody to uh, uh, Africa. And there were three people that we really didn't know, but they said, we want to go to Africa. And all of a sudden we find out that they're teaching bad things in Africa. Right. So I don't think that it's putting it's not imputing anything to James. It's just, you know, you can't know what's inside a person's head. Right. You, you can't. And you send. Um, well, look at the president. The president picks ambassadors. Some of them are obviously political appointments because, you know, you help me get elected or you're famous or whatever. Um, that would be one type of ambassador. But the other ones are normally people that come up through the ranks. And so you evaluate them. And you say, okay, he's qualified at this. He's been in that mission. He understands the, the layout of the country. And so we're going to promote him and come to find out that instead of being a conservative, he's a flaming liberal. But you don't know that because you're not allowed to ask that type of a question. And you find out here he's promoting. You know, just recently, I didn't put it in the prophecy update, but just recently, uh, once again, this happened a year ago, and it happened again just in the past month, is that they're flying this giant LGBTQ flag in Seoul, Korea, and then they put up a giant BLM flag, right? So they're, they're promoting these things without the approval of the president of the United States of America. They represent him. They represent him, and they represent the United States of America, but he appoints them, and therefore, for them to do that, if I was Trump, I would have fired them. The entire top staff would have been gone that day. They would have been gone. He has the right to do it. He is, but he didn't. But that's that answers your question from a different perspective. Right. But that is James does. He's not inside their head, and he probably said, "Well, these people are attending. You know, they, they seem reasonable." But here they are. They're people that want to push the Jewish agenda. Not when I say Jewish, I don't mean Jewish, and I mean the law, the law agenda. Okay, so okay, two fourteen. When I saw that they were not acting in line, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all. You were a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then? How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Okay, that's more of a paraphrase, I would think. But I'll read this, and you'll see. But when I saw that they were not straightforward, a little different terminology there, but it still means the same thing about the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles. And not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? And it doesn't say anything about customs or anything. It just so um, and he's speaking to Peter. He's saying that you're a Jew and yet you're you're let me read it again. You're a Jew, you're living in the manner of the Gentiles. He's up here, he's living with the Gentiles, he's eating whatever they're giving him, he's not in any way following the Jewish customs or the law of Moses. And all of a sudden, now it says, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? In other words, what do we call that? What type of a person do we call it? Hippoc he's a hypocrite. That's right. He's got hip hypocrite comes from a word which means two faces. You're in a uh, play and you have a face and you do this acting part and then you need to play the part of another person and so you put on a different face. That's where that comes from, the, the Greek theater. Okay, and he's playing two faces. He's not playing straight with people. He's saying, I'm going to do this here, and now I'm going to do this here, and he is compromising the faith, and Paul is upset about it, rightfully so. Okay, <clears throat> this verse is perfectly clear on its surface, and yet there are those who can read it, and indeed the rest of the book of Galatians close their eyes to what is being said and continue to insist that we are somehow bound to observe the law of Moses or other Jewish traditions. How do I know that's true? Does anybody know how I know that's true? 
I'm because I'm on Facebook and because I have people email me all the time. Oh, why do you teach these people that they don't have to observe the law? Well, here's what, and they, you can take these verses and you can send them to them and say, what does this say? And they'll come back and they'll say something. They won't even address what it says. They'll just go, well, you're a heretic because, and the, it, well, unbelievable, unbelievable. Right. Well, the other thing about that is that, okay, I know that people, at least when I even first heard it, okay, the, the law is abolished. I'm like, oh, well, wait a second. You know, Ten Commandments. Right. And, well, right. Yeah. And, and I get that. And, and it's, it's, it's a logical reason why, because it's all repeated except for Sabbath. Right. At, on a, at the Mount, Sermon on the Mount. It's like, you know, so it's like it's, it's been repeated. But like it's when people hear that, they get nervous. It's like, oh, oh, yeah. So you think you can do everything. Yeah. Anything you want. That, like, see, and that's another problem. They go to the other side. Well, if you're not under law, then you're you're just you can do whatever you want. And that's called license. And we are not given license. Paul is very clear in his writings about this. So people cannot take the it's when you're given freedom. You have to be what with that freedom? Responsible. responsible. That's exactly the word I was thinking of. People are irresponsible by nature, all of us, okay? When we are given something, we will take advantage of it. And that's not at all what the Bible says that we can do. We are given freedom in Christ, but we are not given license in Christ. And we're not responsible, and so we either fall back on legalism, go to how many churches in the world that are legalistic, or they fall into licentiousness because... Uh, they have freedom and they think they can exercise that freedom. And that is, once again, wrong as well. Go to a million other churches in America and you'll see that one that I attended that mom took me to for all of my growing up. And, no, I'm saying that now she knows. She knows what goes on over there. But that, it wasn't that way when I was young. All of a sudden, though, remember they brought in Wes. Remember Wes, the organ player, and he was gay. And everybody says, oh, it's okay. And and that was the first thing I remember, even as a little kid, not knowing anything. How can that be? You know, I just, it, it that's not normal. And, but that was their first little bit of yeast into there. And I'm sure it was already going on, but that's the first thing I, as a little child, saw. And since then, it is a completely pagan place. There, There's no Christ there at all. I don't care what people say. They can say Jesus and all of those things during the sermon, and he is not. And he has departed the building. No doubt about it. The things that go on in these Episcopal churches nowadays is heartbreaking, okay? But, and you know, that was the Church of America for years. It was an offshoot of the Anglican Church. Uh, people like George Washington went there and, you know, famous people, and they got good theology, and it just had degraded and degraded, and it's gone. Anyway, um, I'll read that again just so you can see. The verse is perfectly clear on its surface, and yet there are those who can read it and indeed read the entire rest of the book of Galatians close their eyes to what is being said, and continue to insist that we are somehow bound to observe the law of Moses or other Jewish traditions. It is a most curious thing to behold. Paul has noted that Peter had fellowshiped with the Gentiles, but when Jews came from James to Antioch, he started separating himself from those same Gentiles. But when Jews, I'm sorry, from those Gentiles and causing the other Jews to separate from them. So that now you've got this division of people. Even Barnabas was found, as Paul says, to be carried away with their hypocrisy. Barnabas, who had been out there with Paul, was carried away. And so Paul, the only one left with any intestinal fortitude to stand up for the truth of the gospel upon seeing his words that they were not straightforward about it, took a stand. The word for they were not straightforward is orthopodeo. Anybody hear anything in there? 
orthotics, yeah, straightening a bone, okay? It's only found here in the New Testament, and just looking at it gives one a sense of the Greek meaning. It comes from ortho, meaning upright, and puos, meaning foot. Thus, it means to be straight-footed, not shuffling. But you think of a bone, it's straight. you got to straighten bones, etc. Okay? The idea is that Peter and the other Jews walked in a manner contrary to the true gospel. They're not straight-footed. They're just all over the place. A guy with a bad foot, and he's walking kind of like this all over the place. That's what we can think of there. All right? The idea is that... Um, uh, Peter and the other Jews walked in a manner contrary to the true gospel. They wavered one way and then the other. Because of this, he spoke, as Paul says, to Peter before them all. In other words, he openly stated his words in front of everyone. He was unashamed to shame somebody that was actually taking the gospel and twisting it or perverting it. And it's the right thing to do. The matter was so severe and the consequences so harmful that he directly challenged this great pillar of the church concerning his aberrant conduct. Okay, when I did the doctrine sermons, there were several times that I named people. Some of them are very famous and their doctrine isn't terrible. Okay, and one of my friends said, I would like you all, he has a Bible study group, and he said, I would like you all to listen to this guy's sermon about the proper gospel. Okay, one of them was uh, on actually the gospel itself. What is wrong so you can know what is right? And I named uh, John MacArthur and um, what's his name, um, Ray Comfort, and a couple other people who, they're, they're good evangelists, but they have a wrong message. And what did they say? They said, he shouldn't be talking about other preachers like that. Okay, but you know what they said just before that? And so my friend called them out on it. Oh, they were there talking bad about Joel Olstein, and they're talking about other preachers. So at what point do you say this is incorrect? The answer is with the gospel. When the gospel is incorrect, I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's the greatest preacher in the world. If Alistair Begg starts teaching something wrong about the gospel, he needs to be called out. I've never heard him do so, but there you go. If you have somebody that is saying something wrong, we've got the precedent right here. This precedent says that we are to not tolerate bad doctrine. We're not to do it, okay? And so there you go with that, especially concerning the gospel. The matter was so severe and the consequences so harmful that he directly challenged this great pillar of the church, meaning Peter, concerning his aberrant conduct. His words to him were, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? This is exactly the hypocrisy that he mentioned in the previous verse. The word being is said in the emphatic position. It means that Peter was and continued to be a Jew. Because of this, his action as a Jew and yet a follower of Jesus are what are being challenged. Everybody see that? Okay. Um, he was and continued to be a Jew. And yet he found it acceptable as a Jew to live as a Gentile. Why? Because he was freed from the bondage of the law by Christ. Here's he the also been living with the Yeah, that's right. Been doing more so than, than Peter. That's right. So like, you know, Oh no, that's who we're speaking about here. We're speaking of Peter. Okay. He right. was living with them as a Jew, and he was and this is what Paul is saying. You being a Jew, right. it's in the emphatic position, and yet here now that you're living like a Gentile and these people show up, you start retracting. You start waffling and pulling away from that. My example here is does anybody here know a Jewish person? We know Sergio, right? Is Sergio bound to the law of Moses? No, no. 
He's a Jew. He lives as a Jew. And yet, I'm talking about lives in the culture of a Jew. And yet he understands his freedom in Christ. Okay? That's what... But suppose that Sergio, and he wouldn't do this. I know know him. But suppose that somebody was coming from a church that was, you know, in Israel and they were observing the law of Moses. Okay? And Sergio started to pull back. That would be exactly what's happening here. Everybody see that? That's what we're talking about. If he started to pull back and started to say, well, I can't do that and I can't do that. And now he's being two-faced because I've spent a lot of my life with Sergio. I spent every single day of my life with Sergio now, even though he's in Nazareth, there's not a day that we don't talk to each other 400 times through fun messages and, you know, building each other up and he's doing something and it's, oh, I'm so, I, I need to take a break and he'll bother me and then I need to take a break and I'll bother him. But if he was to do that, I'd have to call him out. Or if he saw me starting to go into the Hebrew Roots movement in this church, I guarantee you he would call me out. He does. He is no nonsense. That guy is no nonsense when it comes to the gospel. That's what we're looking at right here. Okay. Um, he was freed from the bondage of the law by Christ. In living as a Gentile, he was not living as Jews. In other words, he had departed from the walk of being a Jew under the law. He's still a Jew. There's, that will never change. There is now no distinction in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile, male and female. That does not mean that he's not a Jew and that I'm not a Gentile. It doesn't mean that my mom isn't a woman and that I'm not a man. We still have those categories, but there is no distinction in Christ, okay? He was still a Jew, but now freed from what the unconverted Jews were bound by. And yet, by his actions of removing himself from the Gentiles, he thus compelled the Gentiles, as Paul says, to live as Jews. So here's Peter, living with the Gentiles, acting as a Gentile. All of a sudden, the Judaizers come up there, and they start saying, well, Peter's afraid. And, you know, what are you doing sitting with those Gentiles? Well, I was just being their friend, but I'm, I'm moving back away from them. And now what are the Gentiles going to do? No, they're starting to go into the law. That's what he's saying. He's compelled them, as he says, that he has thus compelled the Gentiles to live as Jews. Because now he's saying, we have to observe the law of Moses. Now, some of them may have been smart and said, we're done with this. You're right. But the ones that are following Peter, they're just going to get sucked right into it. And that is what Galatians is about. It's about freedom from the law. Once again, though, it's not freedom to license, but it is freedom from the law. So he is compelling them to live as Jews. What this means is that he is the apostle, Peter. He carried the authority. He set the example. Through his faulty example, he was sure to cause the Gentiles who had come to Christ to start living as Jews. And that is exactly what we have in these churches around the world, where they start introducing a little bit of Israel, a little bit of Hebrew roots, a little bit, and pretty soon they're all observing the Day of Atonement. They're all wearing these things and covering their heads and all this kind of stuff. And a little yeast turns into a whole loaf full of bad doctrine. That is what's happening here. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Nothing. Once the law starts to get reintroduced, it will take over. Anytime you introduce legalism, that church will become legalistic. Anytime you start introducing liberalism and, you know, licentiousness, that is going to take over unless somebody calls it out. Paul was the only one to stop this from happening. Okay, read that again. He was sure to cause the Gentiles who had come to Christ to start living as Jews. This would bring them under the law 
that they had never been before under, and it would set aside the grace of Christ, which is exactly what he is going to start talking about in the chapters ahead, in the verses and chapters ahead. That is, But he's setting this up so that he can explain to them their error, because this is something that they had seen, and yet they're falling back under it again. Okay, life application. Just because someone is a Jew, just because someone speaks Hebrew, just because someone was born and raised in Israel, or for any other, just because we are not to follow them and take up their practices. Instead, we are to follow the word of God, which is given for us to follow Christ. The word of God clearly shows that we are free from the law. Peter lived that way until he faltered. In his faltering, he had to be corrected, not for failing to observe the law, but for the exact opposite. Stand fast on the grace of Christ. Okay, I'm feeling convicted here because I said that there's a person everybody is aware of and he's teaching bad doctrine, but I don't want to give his name. And that's not right because here he's called out Peter and people need to know that they have to understand when a person is teaching something wrong. So I'm going to say his name. His name is Amir. If you watch Amir, you need to not listen to that type of doctrine. It is incorrect. If he says that Christ is coming to fulfill the feasts of the Lord, that is heresy. It's not bad doctrine. It is heresy. So if somebody, I've tried to email him in the past and all I ever get is a secretary. So I'm done with that. But people need to understand that just because somebody is a specialist in one thing, it doesn't mean he's a specialist in all things. He can speak Hebrew. He can speak, uh, you know, he's born in Israel. He was, uh, you know, a commander in the army or whatever. It doesn't make any difference. It's zero difference. If theology is wrong, it needs to be called out. Okay. So 215. We, who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Okay, that's almost identical, just says sinners of the Gentiles, but there you go. We are Jews by birth. I was just talking about a guy that was born in Israel, Jew by birth, okay, and yet he's teaching something wrong. Now, once again, his doctrine probably isn't that bad. I've never listened to him. I don't listen to videos. I don't watch prophecy updates. I don't watch people send me this stuff, and I watch whatever they tell me to watch, and if they don't give me a timestamp, I will say thank you. I'll go through the video really quickly. I won't listen to the whole thing. I'll just see what it's about. And if I hear something that's wrong, I'll respond to them. But I don't have time to watch videos. I have at least 10 or 12 or 15 hour-long videos sent to me every single day. Okay? It's impossible. And I tell people when I respond to them, I get less time with my wife than anything else. When she comes home, how much time do we spend together every day? 30 minutes? I work, I get up and I start working at four o'clock. She gets home at six o'clock. We have dinner. I'm in bed by usually 7.30, sometimes eight o'clock. We don't get any time together. So when I'm with her, I want to watch something with her that she will enjoy and we can participate in together. She doesn't want to watch that kind of stuff. So here we go. Um, it is debated where Paul's spoken words to Peter, it is, yeah, um, which began in the previous verse actually end, okay? Different scholars will say, this ends Paul's discourse, this ends Paul, I'm, yeah, Paul's discourse to Peter, etc. Read that again. It is debated where Paul's spoken words to Peter, which began in the previous verse, actually end. Are his words through verse 21 included in this address, or does he now speak directly to the Galatians, having shown his disapproval of Peter's actions and his efforts to call him out? Chapter 3 will begin with a direct address to the Galatians, and so his words at that point are purely for doctrine. However, the words from 2.15 to 2.21 are actually doctrinal in nature. Regardless of whether he's still, you know, reciting what he said to Peter or not, they are doctrine in nature. This does not mean that they were not spoken to Peter, though. 
but he changes to the plural in this verse, we. Peter was called out for his error openly in front of all who were there. Therefore, though Paul's words are doctrinal in nature, they were certainly spoken to Peter and to all who were with him. Paul is, in essence, recounting his words of correction to those who had failed to hold to the truth of the gospel. In essence, it is a mini-sermon for the edification of those wayward Jews, which he is restating now in his letter to the Galatians. Okay, I'm going to read this body so that you can see what I'm talking about. We're going to go back to verse 7. Um, no, I'm not going to go back that far. We'll start with 11. And do we stop at 2.15 or do we stop at 2.21 with his address to Peter? Okay, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, now he begins speaking to Hebrew, uh, Peter, I speak, said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Verse 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. He continues, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And now he's still speaking to Peter, most probably. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now, that's speculation. We can't know for certain if he spoke that to them, but the we shows us. He's probably speaking first to Peter, you hypocrite, and then he says to everybody these wonderful words of the gospel once again. Yes. I'm with your, it's like a small sermon you did. The reason being is, is that you know that Peter said something back at some point. Oh, yeah. Time. So that's not recorded. So you know this isn't a, a dialogue. No, that's right. If this is what happened, I'm going to condense this to get the thought across, and I'm going to just get you know, the message that I told them yep. to you because you need to hear it too. You need to hear it as well. So he's conveying to us what was said, and this is now in the book as doctrine. Even though it's not doctrine to the Galatians so much, it's just doctrine within what he is saying. And then we'll get into three one, and we'll get right back into more doctrine. Yes? Do you think maybe that he is, when he says we, we are, that you and I, Peter, are Jews? Yeah. And you know these things, but here they are. Everybody needs to hear them again. Yes. That's exactly what I think is happening. That's why it changes to the we. And he's saying, all these people that are standing here, and a lot of the Judaizers who are pulling you astray, we, he's speaking all of them. We've all been crucified with Christ if we have, in fact, called on Christ. Why are we doing this? So he's, yes, I 100% I think that. Okay, so um, where are we? Um, uh, 
Okay, Paul is in essence, yes, recounting his words of correction to those who had failed to hold to the truth of the gospel. In essence, it is a mini-sermon for the edification of those wayward Jews, which he is restating now in his letter to the Galatians. Okay, the term Jews by nature, Paul's words there, is given for a specific purpose. In Romans 2, Paul says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter. He's speaking about the law of Moses. Now the letter, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And as my friend, she sent me a, a thing about um, puns and idioms and things like that in the Hebrew Bible. And I said, they're even in the New Testament as well. You'll see people repeat things or say things that have two meanings. Well, Jesus did that. When he went to Zacchaeus' house, what did he say? Salvation has come to this house. He was making a pun. His name means salvation. Yeshua is salvation. But he's also saying that this person is saved. So he's making a, what's a double entendre, right? Okay, well, Paul is doing that here. He's making a pun. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise, the word Jew is Judah, Praise, it means praise. So he's saying who's Judah, who's Jew, is not from men, but from God. So he's making a pun, praise and Judah, or Jew, okay? And he's using it so that any Jewish person reading that would be able to understand it, especially if it's translated back into the Hebrew. That's why I love the fact that they came out with Hebrew translations of the New Testament you know, probably since the 50s or so, there have been a lot of them, the Jerusalem Bible, etc. Unfortunately, a lot of them, uh, Sergio got one recently, and uh, we were talking about it. It was done by somebody, and we're returning to the original languages and the original intent and all that. When people say that, you got to be careful, because what they're doing is they're installing their own uh, their own decisions. And what are they doing? Hebrew roots. They're saying, well, actually, the words, you know, if you go to a Bible, especially a Hebrew Bible or an American Bible that says this is based on the Hebrew traditions, and it says in Jeremiah 31, 31, instead of the word new covenant, it says refreshed covenant, you know that you've got a problem because they know that new covenant means the old is superseded. And they don't, they, they can't admit that. So they use the term refreshed. Well, this word actually means refreshed. It's a renewal of the covenant. No, the Law of Moses, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant is done. This is not a refreshed or renewed covenant. It is a new covenant in Christ's blood, and it completely supersedes the old. If you see that in the Bible, I would take that Bible and I would actually chuck it. I wouldn't, you know, I did that when I had a, a New World translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and when I realized what it was, I felt so dirty, I took it and threw it in the dumpster. And then I needed to evangelize a Jehovah's Witness, so I had to go get another one. You know, I had to show where his Bible is wrong. So maybe you shouldn't chuck it, but I would never read that Bible. If it's got that obvious of an error where it's a renewed covenant, when that word cannot mean anything but new. Okay, get rid of that Bible. Like, you know, they never say, even use the word covenant in the New Testament. Right. Just like ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's a covenant. It's a covenant. It's a covenant. That's right. You've got a testament and a covenant, and the two are different things. Okay, because the New Testament has parts of it that are under the Old Covenant. Matthew, Mark, Luke, right, and John, but John is, has a different purpose, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are Jesus fulfilling the law, okay? That's why they're in there. That's why it's called the New Testament, but then he speaks of covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. So in the New Testament, 
the new covenant is introduced. And you have to be careful. And I know I've read some of my old commentaries and I've made that error. I've said a new Testament when I meant to say a new covenant. So you've got to be careful and, and nobody's perfect. We all, you know, we get sidetracked, we get worn out, we get tired and we make uh, errors and it's too bad, but that happens. But you're correct. We need to be specific with the terminology. Okay, so the um, that's Romans 2, 28 and 29, which I just read, whose praise is not from men, but from God. There is the natural Jew who is born of the covenant people, and then there is the true Jew who lives according to the precepts which made him a Jew in the first place. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 10, uh, 9 through 11 that uh, not everyone of Israel is I don't want to misquote it, and I'm not going to go back there and get it right now, but not all of Israel are Israel, okay, I think is what he says. Anyway, he's making a point that just because you're born into the people of Israel does not mean that you're a true Israelite. It means that you are of the covenant people. That is your lineage, that is your heritage, but you are not converted. And that goes all the way back to the law of Moses where he says, you know, speaks of circumcision of the heart in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's repeated by Jeremiah. It's repeated in there. And Paul repeats it here in the New Testament. Circumcision is of the heart or you're not a true Jew. You're just living your life as a cultural Jew. Okay. Circumcision of the flesh identifies their lineage, but circumcision of the heart identifies their standing with God. I talked about that a couple sermons ago, actually several times in the past sermons, is that just because you're circumcised, it does not mean that you are living right. But the Jews take the sign of circumcision and they say, this is my sign and therefore I'm right with God. And that's not correct. The sign of circumcision is to say you're a part of the covenant people, whether you are right with God or not. The sign of circumcision is not a thing in itself. It points to something else. And if it doesn't is not accompanied by that something else in that person, then that sign means nothing. And that's what Paul will write about. We'll continue in Galatians and you'll see that. Circumcision doesn't mean any. And how do you know that's true? Because there are cultures all over the world that do what? Circumcise, Circumcise their people. Circumcision is not anything if it is not accompanied with what it is supposed to be accompanied with, which means a heart for the Lord, okay? That's the point there. Paul is speaking of the latter when addressing Peter and the other saved Jews. They had given up on works of the law, understanding that Christ was the fulfillment of it. That Thus they understood, or they stood in contrast to sinners of the Gentiles. You've got a true Jew, and you're contrasted to sinners of the Gentiles. All Gentiles, all Gentiles on this planet at this time, all of them were outside of the promises of Christ. The only people that were included in the promises of Christ were the Jews. They were given the law. It was given to lead them to Christ, and everybody else was outside of the covenant. Okay. However, in Christ, uh, where was I? Uh, all Gentiles were outside of the promises of Christ. There was nothing that could bring them into a right relationship with God. Nothing. Okay. However, in Christ, that could happen. Paul will explain to Peter how the same process saves both Jew and Gentile, and thus it will demonstrate that their circumcision of the flesh meant nothing in the eyes of God in relation to their right standing with him. All that matters is faith in the work of Christ. Their circumcision brought them into the people. That's all it did. It did not make them right with the Lord. If they were not right with the Lord, they were just as any Gentile in the world as far as right standing with God. Okay, life application.
Later in Galatians, Paul will say that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This does not mean that there are not Jews now. Just talking about Sergio. It means that there is no distinction between any of these categories in regards to salvation and incorporation into the body of Christ. The fact that Paul says neither male nor female shows that this must be true. Men do not stop being men when they come to Christ. Paul's words need to be carefully, carefully evaluated lest we follow unintended paths in our understanding of right doctrine. That verse that I just quoted that we're going to be going through in Galatians a little bit later is one of the most common verses that is cited to justify women preachers. I see it all the time, all the time, because they say, we're all one in Christ Jesus, and therefore I can, and I say, is that what that verse is saying? And then I ask them, do you have a congregation? Yes. When you attend, do you know which one are men and which one are women? Yes. Then you're obviously misinterpreting that verse. It's that simple. But they don't want to hear that. But that is one of the most common verses which is used to justify, which is otherwise not justified and not allowed within Scripture. Okay, 216. Oh, wait, let me finish up. Uh, Paul's words need to be carefully evaluated lest we follow unintended paths in our understanding of right doctrine. Regardless of our genealogy, gender, or status in society, we all have access to the one true God through Christ Jesus. When I say status within society, give me an example from the New Testament which shows us that. The book of begins with a P, ends with Philemon. That's right. All right, Philemon. He's a slave, and yet he is on the same level as his master in Christ. And Paul is appealing on his behalf to free him and make him on the same level outside of Christ as well, within the regular society. So there you go. That's one of them. Paul says, I am a what of Christ? Bond servant of Christ. He has reduced himself in position being in Christ. He's saying, I am a slave of Christ. Okay, but he was a free man within the Greek or Latin or whatever society he happened to be walking through because he was a Roman citizen. Wherever he was, he was a free man, but he was a bondservant of Christ. So the slave in Christ is free, and the free man in Christ is his bondservant. Everybody's on an equal level here. Nobody is above another in Christ. That's what that verse is telling us. Okay, 216. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Three times in one verse. Three times. Anybody that reads that without ever knowing anything about Scripture would be able to say, I am not under the law of whatever he's talking about. It's that simple. Three times in one verse. Read it again and listen. Now think of somebody that's in the Hebrew roots and you read this verse to them and they have to actually shut their brain off. They have to completely shut it off when they say, you're a heretic, back to you when you read it to them. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. That's one. Um, where was I? But by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. That's two. For by the works of the law, here it is, number three, no flesh. Not one person on this planet, no flesh shall be justified. Three times in one verse, and it's not even an entire verse. It just, it's a, a what do you call it, a, a clause within a larger sentence. 
okay? Three times, and yet people can't get it right. And they fall back on the works of the law. I've got to observe the Sabbath. I've got to do this and that. Hey, man, the entire Seventh-day Adventist is caught up in that theology. And this one verse dispels it. Seventh-day Adventism now has gone on for, what, 150 years or more, right? And they read this book, and they come to the wrong conclusion if they're reading this book. Because this book will dispel that. No works of the law. Is the Sabbath the work of the law? Absolutely. Okay. So, 2.16. Paul's words here, probably spoken to Peter at, as a correction, are also as direct and obvious on the surface as they could be. Even though they are spoken to Peter, they are to be used as doctrine and for correction. They develop the very basis of justification by faith, and they clearly show that deeds of the law can do nothing to either bring about salvation or keep one saved. And yet these words are completely ignored by legalists, heretics, and false Christians. It is as if Paul's words have no meaning to them at all. Absolutely. How can you read that verse and not understand what it's saying? And yet it happens all the time. You know what? This is why I'm going to tell you, I'm going to stop right here for just one second. And I'm going to say this is why I love the book of Galatians. I, I literally love it. When I listen to it, I rejoice. I just got done with it a couple days ago in the car. I'm up to uh, uh, Colossians today. They're small epistles. And Stacy Keach reads the Bible, the audio Bible I'm listening to for Paul. He does a wonderful job of it. He really does. Anyways, Word of Promise is the audio Bible I'm listening to now. I gave the last one away. I'll listen to this a couple times and I'll send this to somebody else, whatever. But I'm really enjoying Stacy Keach and his version of uh, reading Paul's letters. But um, when I listen to it, now this is me, because I grew up in church, you know, and I'm sure I knew Jesus as a boy. I, I, I'm sure I must have. I walked so far away from Christ that it was as if my life was completely in darkness. And then when I was 36 years old, I found Christ, really found him, okay? And the freedom, the freedom. I told somebody at Bible class one time, I said it during the class and everybody looked at me like, what are you talking about? And then Mary, remember old Mary, 94, 95 years old? She said, that is exactly what happened to me. Exactly. Is she? She's got to be a hundred now. She is a really nice lady too. Anyway, I told him, I said, when I really understood who Christ was, I walked outside and everything had color. I never noticed the color. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding at all. The green was green. I looked at the sky and I said, it's so beautiful and blue. It was like, just like Paul says, the veil is lifted. I mean, it was the whole Hedico. She's always been beautiful, but she was just so much more beautiful to me. Everything was different. And she said, that's exactly what happened to me. I walked outside and I couldn't believe the colors. It was like my life. I was just walking and I wasn't paying attention to what God had done. And all of a sudden, everything was colorful. It was beautiful. And I said, I'm glad somebody else had that because I wasn't sure if it was just me being crazy or something. But this book is freedom. I mean, the whole Bible is freedom, but this book is so clear and so explicit that when you read it, and then you think of people that are still walking in darkness. They say they've called on Christ, and yet they're, they've got this veil over their eyes. And I think, take it off. Go outside. It's beautiful out there. It, behold, all things are new. That's exactly right. Oh my goodness. I love this book. I could just sit here and go over one verse again every week and never go past that one verse and be happy with it. I know you'd all get tired of it after two weeks and not come anymore, but I love the book of Galatians and everything it proclaims. Okay. It's not a veil. 
It's more a yoke. It's a yoke. Put on you. And you're just burdened down. You can't even lift your eyes to see the blue sky. That's, that's exactly right. It is as if Paul's words have no meaning to them at all. And this is exactly why Paul is so often maligned. Theories about the corruption of his letters at an early point in history are spoken of as fact in order to negate the authoritative nature of what he says. In calling into question the reliability of the letters of Paul, which we now possess, the only choice one has is to then throw them out of one's theology and to fall back on a reliance of the law. That is it. Without Paul's letters, you will be stuck in bondage for the rest of your life unless you just are one of the very few people that can see from the Old Testament and Christ's fulfillment of it. Like David. David wrote these things in the Psalms that people today in Israel don't have any idea what he's talking about. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. And they don't have any idea what that means because they're in the law and they think that the law has freed them from sin when it's exactly the opposite. This week we'll talk about that exactly the opposite. The law doesn't free us from anything. It binds us. Okay, so um, they have to throw it out of their theology and fall back on a reliance of the law. But this approach demonstrates a rather incompetent God. If God has Paul's epistles corrupted, and that's what we have is Paul's corrupted epistles, God wasn't very competent in getting us his word, was he? Okay, who cannot even secure his word enough to bring it to us in a manner which shows us what is expected of us. If Paul's words are suspect, then all of the other books of the Bible are too. Such conspiracies are destructive, and they, put for, they are put forth by legalists and nutjobs. Ignore such perverse people entirely. If somebody says that those words of Paul are corrupted, I would never listen to that person again. They are not. Now, there are obviously differences in text. And we know that and we've seen that and we've gone through why that happens and how it happens and that we still have a sure word. That's not a problem. Having said that, I was reading today, I'm, I'm doing a study on a particular chapter of the Bible right now. Marvelous chapter. It's just got beautiful pictures of the Lord and all kinds of stuff. And I thought, I'm going to just read the whole passage in Young's literal translation. And it is 10,000 times better than anything I've read. I, you know, I check Young's every verse when I'm doing a sermon. But I wanted to just read the whole passage as it was. It's very hard to read. I'm going to tell you, it's very stiff. It's very mechanical. But you get the sense of what's being said in that passage. Much better than any other I've seen. It is an astonishingly, astonishingly well-translated Bible. Even if it's stiff and hard to read, and it's got that old English tone to it, kind of like the King James Version, but without all the errors. It's a, In other words, when it has a definite article, you know, the person and the King James Version will say a person. Well, the the is there for a reason. And he puts, he always puts the articles in there. And so you know what's being said. It's not like you're getting wrong information. You're getting the correct information. Read Young sometime. I was actually thinking while I was sitting there reading that passage today, I'd like to start using Young's for the sermons, but I think we'd have rebellion and people would leave because it, it's very hard to, to grasp, but it's, it's marvelous in the precision that he gives you. Anyway, um, they, uh, um, in this verse, Paul begins with knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. These words are based on his introductory thought that said, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. In other words, he is speaking to Peter in the presence of the other Jews who had removed themselves from the Gentiles. They, meaning these believing Jews, already knew this point. They had received Christ's justification by grace, 
when they believed in him and what he had done. They had grown up under the law, and yet Christ had come. If they could be justified under the law, then there would have been no need for Christ at all. If And I'm going to say that, I think, in the sermon on Sunday. I might Maybe it's some other time, but think it through. We've got the law. If any person on this planet, from the day that the law was given by Moses all the way until the coming of Christ, if any person could live that law the way that God expected it to be done, then Christ came for absolutely no reason at all. Pointless. Because if one person can do it, then God's law is satisfied, and it doesn't matter. That one person can go to heaven, and all the rest of them can be condemned. And only one did, and it was a person without a human father. He inherited no sin, and so he was capable of doing it. Christ. However, he did come. Because he did, then there must have been a reason for it. And the reason is perfectly obvious. No man is or ever could be justified by the works of the law because no man can meet the expectations of the law. The law only brings a consciousness of sin. And the law only brings condemnation because of that sin which it reveals. That's all that the law can do with the exception of the Day of Atonement, which was in anticipation of Christ. Hebrews 10.4, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, could never take away sin. We know that, but it was given as an annual reminder of that fact until Christ came. That's the only provision that would even allow a person to think that they could be right by, with God. Okay, Christ needed to come and fulfill the law for us. In doing so, we are justified, as Paul says, by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to have to go quick because we're almost done with this uh, class, and I got a lot of notes on this verse. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, Christ in him alone. Okay. Oh, yeah. It is faith in what Christ did and faith alone which justifies a man in God's sight. The Jews Paul is speaking to found this out. They placed their faith in Christ and they received the spirit of promise. Those who did not place their faith in him did not receive the spirit, right? Only the people that believed in Christ got the spirit. The obvious truth then is that only those who trust in Christ and in him alone will be saved because nobody else has the spirit. They had done nothing to deserve this state of justification except to believe in him. Go to uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. This is what they found out when they had their Pentecost moment. As Paul says, this applies to even his words, we who have believed in Christ Jesus. Those who hadn't believed did not receive. Nothing could be clearer. Not only are Paul's words here not corrupted by a later source, they are merely an obvious explanation of what occurred in the book of Acts. Rather than being corrupted words of a Gentile-led conspiracy, they simply reveal what the historical record of Acts clearly and poignantly shows us. The account in Acts, which Paul is recalling to the mind of Peter and the other Jews now, shows that when they believed in Christ Jesus, Paul's words, believed in Christ Jesus, it was so that they, here we go, might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. All of the Jews in Acts fall into one of two categories, every one of them. One, those who had trusted in Christ, believing that he was the fulfillment of the prophetic utterances of their people, or two, those who had rejected Christ. And those are the only two categories that we have in all of human history to this day. For the first category, they received the Spirit without having done anything according to the law during the process. Nothing. In fact, the Spirit came at Pentecost, 
many months before the annual Day of Atonement. And yet, despite not having that year's sins atoned for, the Day of Atonement is months away, they were granted the Holy Spirit. Those in the second category had rejected Christ, continued to pursue the law, and did not receive the Spirit. Now, there was one caveat that they were told you had to do something, and after they did it, they received the Spirit. What was it? They were baptized. There is a reason why that happened. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, and Acts chapter 10 follow a theme. Unfortunately, we're not there. I'm not going to do it, but if I show you on the board, you will see exactly why baptism is mentioned in all three of those, and it is water baptism. You're going to find that out. I've done it before outside. I think I did it at the beginning of the book of Romans, but it's very clear what is going on and what the water baptism is showing us, okay? But having said that, those in the second category had rejected Christ, continued to pursue the law, and did not receive the Spirit. They were not justified in God's sight. So you either have those that are justified because they believed, or those that are not justified because they didn't believe. Those are the two categories. And the reason for both of these categories is that, Paul's words, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Anyone who has shown this logical and obvious verse given by Paul and then rejects what it shows is self-deluded. There's no other explanation for it. It reveals exactly what Acts reveals, and it was spoken to the very person who, in Acts chapter 2, was a participant in the reception of the Spirit. He then spoke under the influence of the Spirit to the rest of the Jews who had not yet believed. Those who did then received the Spirit. Those who did not did not receive him. Paul is calling this to the incident to the mind for Peter to remember and to rely on. And he is doing so in order that they wouldn't be a stumbling block to the Gentiles who, had, who never had the law in the first place. There is one truth in Christ. We are saved by grace through faith and not through any works of the law. Not one. And that's what Paul, I mean, uh, David understood when he wrote the words I quoted a few minutes ago. Blessed is the man to whom uh, righteousness is imputed apart from works of the law. Or I think he says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Okay? Means it's apart from the law. They are entirely excluded, the works of the law. Why can't people see this and simply accept it at face value? The book of Galatians is not a difficult book to understand. But I will say this. we got just two minutes, and so I'll read a life application. But before I do, I will say that somebody emailed me today. I was so thankful to get this email. She said, I thank you for telling us to read one book eight or 10 or 12 times in a row. She said, I have a hard time remembering what I read when I read the Bible. I say, what did I just read? I do this all the time. I'm like, and I'll go back and I'll read what I just read because I wasn't paying attention. My mind is all over the place. And she said, by doing that, by reading the same book four and five and six times and seven and ten times, all of a sudden it starts to fall into place. It starts to make sense. I had another friend that called me and uh, we talked uh, on the phone. Um, he called on Monday. I wasn't happy, but I did pick up the phone anyway. And then after he talked, I unplugged the phone because I hate getting calls on Monday. But we talked about in the same thing. Read the book of Romans eight or ten times. And he listened to it this week on double speed. So he got through it really quickly eight or ten times. And he read it. And read. It starts to make sense. Do that and you will be blessed. Okay, life application. we got to finish. Why is it so important to be able to refute people who say we cannot eat pork or that we must observe a Sabbath day in order to be pleasing to God? The reason is that if we do those things in order to be pleasing to him, then we can never be pleasing to him. 
Only by faith in what he has done through Christ can we ever hope to please our Heavenly Father. It is that important. There is only one way to please God, and that is to be saved by the blood of Christ. And after that, then to live for Christ, not go back on the law because that's not pleasing to him. It's living in accord with the life that Christ has given you in God, or God has given you in Christ. Okay, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the book of Galatians, and we're thankful for coconuts, too. They really are wonderful. We can open them up, and we can enjoy the delight that's in a coconut, and we can also open up your word, and we can just taste wonderful things right out of it. Sweeter than honey to our mouths, it is a delight to our senses. We thank you for it, we praise you for it, and we glorify you for your wonderful word, which tells us of Jesus and he reveals you to us. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it's in his beautiful name we close today. Amen. Amen. Romans 5, 1 and 9, justified by faith. By faith. By faith. And by nothing else. By faith. Here we go. We're going to back this baby up. And we're going to say goodbye to the...